Hey friends, thanks for taking time to listen in on part two of my conversation with the guys about how F1 teams make money. Appreciating how money affects a sport enables you to see it not simply for the racing. It enables you to understand reasons for why certain decisions are made by teams, drivers, and even the sport itself. Because after all, F1 is a business as much as it is a sport. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, so then moving on to commercial relationships that actually build the brand for the company. So typically, you know, you can you can do a number of different things. And I, I you know, branding is definitely a piece of it. Um, but I, I think most sponsors these days or commercial partners, I think that they get into these deals and, and it's a branding exercise. It's a business to business exercise. It's a, a business to consumer exercise. And, and so what I mean by all of that is, is that I think probably 20 years ago, the value of having your logo or your name on the side of a racing car um, became um, less attractive. There, there had to become other ways to make that, um, to, to get the ROI where it needs to be for those investors that return on investment. And so you know, what will happen is, is that there will be a component in there where, you know, let's say you're, you have some sort of a consumer product that you're selling. Um, you may very well then include something that would engage more people in the public to get email addresses or um, have them sample products or anything along those lines beyond just them seeing um, the um the name of your company on the side of the car. And, and at the same time, you may be wanting to go and open up new, um, uh, new markets for yourself mm-hmm. as you go around the world. Right. And so that, that becomes a, a situation where um, you're inviting people as your special guests to the races. And now you're hosting people who can stroke a really big check. Um, you're hosting them in a one-on-one situation, basically on your turf, which is your your paddock space. Um, and most of these people may or may not be big Formula One fans, but they're they're probably not big fans. But they come to the races, they get caught up in the you know the glitz and the glamour, and they meet your drivers and all that kind of stuff. Well, when the race starts, they don't know anybody else in the race. So guess what? They're rooting for your car. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if they're rooting for your car in their subconscious, they're actually rooting for your company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the big sponsors understand that. And so, you know, a great example was years and years and years ago, Roger Penske did a deal with um, um, American Express Traveler's Checks, I believe it was. And and the, um, the whole premise of the deal was, is if you go to the, your bank to get traveler's checks back in those days, that was, a, that was a thing. It's not anymore, but it was a thing then, um, you know, you're going to go travel or whatever. Well, you don't care whether it's American express or, you know, some other bank that's, you know, funding these checks, you could care less. So what you wanted to do is if you're American express, you want to go to the guy at the bank that controls the purchase of these checks because the consumer could care less, but the bank needs something to sell to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so in effect, that banker is making a purchase decision 
for literally thousands and thousands of people because mm-hmm. he's the one that decides who's going to be doing business with his bank. And so, you know, that same concept is being is being used today um, in in certain situations. Um, so there's there's all sorts of different ways you can you can you know peel that onion. I, I think maybe the best example of all was. Um, uh, the sponsorship that Target had. Uh, now, this is an IndyCar, but it, it's the principle still applies. And basically what they did was, is that Target did not put any money at all into uh, Chip Ganassi racing for, I think it was like 20 years, but their cars were in the Target logos and colors for that entire period of time. And what, what Target did was they went to somebody like a Coca-Cola and they said, Hey, we're going to give you premium shelf space in all of our stores, but you're actually going to pay us for that premium shelf space. And you're going to put a premium on top of that because guess what? You're now an associate sponsor of the target tip Ganassi IndyCar team. Mm. Wow. So the Coca-Cola would get that premium shelf space where everybody sees the Coca-Cola products out there when they walk into a, you know, one of the however many thousands of target stores there are. But they would also have their logo on the side of the car. They would get that exposure on TV. They could bring, you know, distributors and entertain them at the races, all that kind of stuff. So that then is how Target got into it. And they never spent any money. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. all funded by by the people that were wanting to put their products on Target shelves. Kmart did the same thing. There's a name from the past for you. So. Yeah, I haven't seen a Kmart in forever. Maybe their plan of how they did that branding maybe didn't work out as well as Target. Didn't work out so well. Uh, right. John, do you want That's to add it. in on any of that? Uh, I would add a couple of things. Um, and Guy Edwards was a guy who was a European, a British who, guy who came over to the U.S. and would spend a week or two in New York. And he would basically sell magazines on the idea of giving him a certain amount of ad space, which he would then go and secondarily sell. And, and that was his deal. But my my own experience in, in how this brand thing works uh, was a relationship that I brokered or was part of brokering between a, a major North Carolina bank and uh, a racing team. And for the um, very, I mean, honestly, modest amount of money that they put into the racing team the team won a championship that year and they ended up with a full page spread in the Wall Street Journal uh, highlighting the the bank on the car. And wow. so so that really paid off for them in a big way because they would have had to go buy that space. They would have had to spend a lot of money doing it and it wouldn't have been nearly as visually attractive as being associated with the racing team and having the picture of the car there. As you both were talking about branding and the way that it has been and or is even currently, it made me also think about my interface with socials. As you both know, I'm not really on the social medias that much, but if there is anything I'm paying attention to in the social media world, it's Formula One. And I've noticed the drivers mm-hmm. will, at cert- especially it seems to be during the break, which makes sense, that they'll have some pictures of maybe a watch that they are wearing and they will say, oh, I just went and did this photo shoot or they go to some location. Maybe it is a, a hotel company. Fernando Alonso, I think, is a representative for some kind of audio headphone company. 
And so this makes sense to me when you say that this is where it has been. And now, especially with the younger audiences being more in the social media world, that's a new product that can be sold to generate income for the company is the social medias of how many posts are going to happen, how directly, what time and where and what it's going to look like. I think any company that wants to build that kind of commercial relationship, I would imagine, is wanting to maximize the eyeballs that are going to the team on the socials. So number five, which was points based on driver standings and team standings. Yeah, I mean, that's a real complicated uh, and tortured uh, formula (laughs) that that this comes down to. And you're not talking about a little bit of money. You're talking about, you know, tens of and hundreds of millions of dollars distributed at the end of the season based on points, which is why... Teams and drivers are so angry when their driver pitches it into the fence and and uh, they lose a points-paying position and why they'll fight so hard for a points-paying position. But but there's a formula, and needless to say, if people want to research it, it's easily found. But, but all the teams get paid a certain amount, which last year was $35 million. Um, and then the, the top 10 teams get uh, paid a, a set amount above and beyond that. I think it's 10. Um, and then there are it divides then down into points made by the driver and the team and points that are uh, accumulated over the i think it's the last 3 seasons or some kind of thing like that it's a it's a very complicated formula but they're all reasonably happy with it because they all make a lot of money out of it and they're willing to um, put aside the fighting until they can until they can go out and take a point off somebody else. Um, but, th- but that's a big part of their revenue. Mm-hmm. So is that 35 million? It, would that essentially cover their cost for being the, um, to be on the grid? Cause isn't there a certain like baseline you, in order to be able to be on the grid, you have to be able to hand over to the FIA. Well, Yeah. <laughs> So, yep. so is that, well, the reason why I guess why I'm a- asking this question is that is essentially they're getting some of their money recouped back for being on the grid. But in order to move up in advance and and get the testing and you know continue the the like the what is it the momentum on the flywheel, you got to get up into the top ten. Otherwise, you're just barely surviving if you're just if you're staying below in that standings. Am I correct? Yeah, generally so. I mean, Dick, you've got a take on this, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one of those deals. They're out, you know, making their, you know, they're making their budget. There's a budget cap of $135 million uh, to run two cars for a season, right? And so, you know, they are, are best, um, they are best uh, positioned if they have their, their, all their commercial sponsors, partners, whatever you want to call them, they have them all lined up. So that $135 million nut is already covered before the season ever starts. And then you have that that points distribution at the end of the year. Well, that's their profit. Mm-hmm. And so, and they can, right, they can buy new facilities or whatever. Because I, I have this saying, if your budget is a million dollars, you'll spend a million dollars if you're a racer. If your budget is... $135 million, you'll spend $135 million. And so, um, you know, that's just the way it works. And so um, the more revenue that they can bring in, yes, I mean, they all, they all enjoy having plenty of money. 
And I believe on that $135 million cost cap, that does not include driver salaries. It doesn't include marketing expenses and all that. So they they have to pull in more than just the $135 million. So to John's point, you know, you have a couple of big crashes that ride off a, you know, a chassis or two. Um, that puts such a dent in your budget. Um, it really puts you behind the, the eight ball because you can't do in-season testing, maybe. Or mm-hmm. I, I should say in-season development work, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, of course, you know, just to get in on the grid, say you're a new team, you know, we're, we're watching this with Michael Andretti's efforts to get on board. Um, you know, originally the buy-in was $200 million on the teams, you know, just for your basically your franchise fee, right? And um, the team stepped up and says, no, we're actually worth way more than that. Uh, having an extra team is going to dilute the revenue that we're, we're bringing in. So we think the number is more like $500 million. So, mm. you know, it's one of those deals where the goalposts keep moving. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's you, you both helped me understand that better. Cause I think when you just use the term franchise fee, I think that cleared it up for me. Cause the 35 mm-hmm. isn't really even going to cover the, the quote franchise fee. But and and right. when you look at the five hundred, the valuation is that uh, is that slightly. John, I'm gonna I want to make sure you jump in. Is that a, a increased valuation really a tactic to keep Andretti off the grid? Well, I have yes. private thoughts about Andretti and his bid to get on the grid. But no, I think that that is a real reckoning by by uh, Liberty Media about the value of of a place at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when they bought it, uh, and I guess we'll get into this on the next point, but when they bought it, they didn't pay that much for it. And they've already been offered 20 billion, I guess it is, for the rights. Um, so so clearly, I think they paid something like five. Um, mm-hmm. so so clearly there's been a real increase in value of the company, and the teams are right to um, in my view, to to um say we need to have another look at this and decide what the value is because they will they're right in saying that the value is greater but they're also right in saying that adding more teams will dilute the the uh, the points pot the money pot for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well so dick why don't you reply to that and then also tell us about number six selling part of the team to yeah. investment bankers or acquisition companies yeah so um i think i think my parting shot on the whole valuation thing is, is that if you think about it, owning an F1 team would be a little bit like owning an NFL franchise, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. You know, cause one of the other areas of revenue that we haven't even talked about is merchandise sales. Well, right. That's, that's true. Big, that's very true. Big, big business. Right. Right. And so I think, I think when you, when you start thinking about it in those terms, I don't know what the buy-in is for an NFL team, but you know, it's at least a billion dollars before you even break ground for a stadium or anything. So, you know, when you think of it in those terms, you think, well, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm starting to track on, on the team saying, yeah, our value is worth more because if you, if you take a step back and there's a lot of people who argue this one with me, but you know, essentially formula one puts on 23 super bowls every year. You know, you go to any, any Formula One race, you think about the attendance, you think about the worldwide visibility. Yes, it's not as big in the United States, but if you look at it in a global perspective, Formula One's bigger. And so 
yeah, you know, I mean, half a billion dollars for a buy-in, it's not that outrageous when you put it in those terms. Mm-hmm. So that's that that's the that's the piece that I would say. I think in terms of the other one, which is, you know, we just talking about, you know, selling a part of the team to like investment bankers or uh, acquisition companies. Certainly we see that, you know, Williams is in that situation right now. Um, there's, there's been those situations before where teams will be in trouble or, um, they'll view that as a, as a great, uh, way to raise funding. I mean, McLaren, uh, to me is, is a great example. You know, they sold the McLaren technology center, uh, and then leased it back to investors to raise money. Um, they are also funded by a sovereign wealth fund out of Bahrain. Mm-hmm. And basically, a lot of people don't know what a sovereign wealth fund is, but basically that's where you have natural resources in a country and you put a valuation on those natural resources. And then that then can be converted to cash, even though oil in the ground may not be pumped out yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that money then can be invested into whatever it could be. Uh, the infrastructure needed for a country or, you know, build some new airports or something like that. Or it could be invest in publicly traded companies who appear to be undervalued. That could be um, real interesting plays over a, a longer period of time. And that's part of where the the money from the uh, sovereign wealth fund out of Bahrain went, that went to McLaren when McLaren was, having problems with their road car division and they were in big trouble with their formula one team and all that kind of stuff. And so they injected money in, into McLaren to keep them going. So that's the other, that's the other aspect to it. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, like whenever you go and invest when times are low and now you look at where formula one is and that valuation that we've all been talking about, they're probably all feeling pretty good about themselves right now, I would suspect. Mm-hmm. Well, as you guys have been talking, I was thinking how it sounds like more of a corporate feel is coming into the world of F1, but I can't imagine there wasn't that in the background in earlier eras. It's just maybe more visible and maybe driving it from a more of the front of the proverbial car versus in the background. Yeah, selling part of the team is has kind of become a necessity because of the huge expenses needed to uh, the spend needed to build the team up to the level to compete with the other teams. And so it it makes sense from that point of view to sell part of the team so that you have the resources. And then the other side of the coin is that these teams don't go on forever. The people don't, at least, um, mm-hmm. you know, Ferrari is still an F1 team, but Enzo has been dead for a good long while now. Uh, Frank Williams has been dead for a while now, but the team is still there. Sauber, Peter Sauber has sold his his interest in the team um, to move on. He's 70 some years old now and he wants to you know, sit by the fire, I guess, a little bit. Um, so there, there's a practical side to selling the t- part of the team, at least. And then the business aspect of it, it's a, you know, Doralton is the, the capital company that bought into Williams. And, and they, um, my understanding is that they leverage off of that 
to do other business deals, like uh, back to some of what Dick was talking about earlier about uh, bringing people to the races and stuff like that, making it a sales tool. So that's uh, that's another reason for people to be buying in, but uh, but but it's also a reason for for teams to be selling part of themselves to take advantage of that opportunity. That's really good. I know that our time, it's requiring us to wrap up, but I will say I have really appreciated this conversation, especially because it highlights the business aspect of Formula One that I think as a casual viewer, you may not fully grasp all that's happening to ensure that that race is getting to happen or that team is out there putting that car, what's happening behind that driver. And this is all a learning opportunity, I think, for people who want to see what Mm. other things derive out of the world of F1, not simply the thing that I think that we all at the most basic purest level love is the the driving itself, but all the other less life lessons and principles. I think we've talked about in other conversations that can come from this or skill development that can come from this. So I thank you gentlemen, both for your time. And I look forward to another conversation. Okay, friends, what did you think of this conversation? Drop me a line via email, sabrina at twoguysagirlandf1.com. New to the podcast? If so, take some time to catch our earlier episodes. We think if you're a new or casual fan of F1, then you'll benefit from our F1 101 episode. You might also enjoy our series, Deep Dives with Dick. If you want to learn a little bit more about John, Dick, or me, then you might enjoy our individual episodes where we discuss our F1 origin stories. And with that, let me say, that ends this conversation. But rest assured, we'll keep talking and you can keep listening in because we're just two guys, a girl, and F1. For John, Dick, and me, Sabrina, thanks for listening.